This morning, we will visit other elements that are indeed tied to the advent of the Christ, the first advent indeed. And by the way, these all show up much sooner than the three wise men. We need to state that. Two years or so, by many estimates, is when they showed up. We're going to see some figures that are not so well known that showed up well before the wise men did. So let's take a look at them. Verse 21, let's read our passage through to 38. Luke 2, 21. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him... According to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84 She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come before this passage, Father, recognizing their inspired words from you. Lord, would you pierce our heart with this light of truth in this passage. Give us understanding. Give us, Lord, will and volition to live in light of it and to go out later to do just that. We beg and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice as you scan that passage, two more animals and two more people associated with Christ's birth. You see that there are two turtle doves or two pigeons, and we'll come back to that. One righteous and devout man, who's not Joseph, by the way. One worshiping, thankful woman, who is not Mary. In fact, our aim, if we wanted another one, we could make a case that Simeon and Anna should be added to well-known nativity sets. These are two good children of God here, Simeon and Anna, and we're going to study them. And again, as we've noted, these individuals that are lesser known are located 
much earlier to the birth of Christ than more well-known, as we've mentioned, the wise men. These are located 40 days, or if we're being precise, 41 days after Christ's birth. We're going to see that in a moment. So unheralded, Simeon and Anna, but look at it. They're still here, right here, plainly in the pages of Luke's gospel. Their presence and testimony amid a number of elements that we might just overlook. Some elements that are familiar, we've sung about some already, but then some not so familiar. Some familiar like light and love, certainly associated a Christmas with those, but then some not so much, which are also here law and longing. All coming to fullness here at the birth of Jesus Christ. So let's take time this Christmas morning to see just how this fullness of Christ's birth is manifest in this passage. Our first point, and the first thing we're going to see this morning, is indeed law. Go back to verse 21, law. Look at it. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Again, we're picking up where the traditional Christmas story leaves off, right? This is so often where it stops in verse 20, but we continue in verse 21 and see Jesus was circumcised. Why? Well, Jesus was and is, to state the obvious, a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. And for a Jew, circumcision was a mandated legal affair. Circumcision was instituted under Abraham, Genesis 17, and prescribed by Moses through the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 12. And circumcision was not only the lawful action that you see in this passage. Circumcision is not it. It's not the only law you see here at Jesus' birth. In fact, let's look at verses 22 to 24. We see more. Look at this. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That's all law language. Look at verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord... Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Lots there. And I I hope you see, beloved, the point of these verses is very plain. It's law, law fulfillment, repeated often and stated in two ways. Look at verse 22, the law of Moses. The law of Moses is the reason why Jesus is brought to Jerusalem. Look at verses 23 and 24. The law of the Lord repeated there. Sacrifice according to that. The law of the Lord stated in both verses. Now as you see that, consider that law is not your standard Christmas association. I reckon none of you received a Christmas card with all kinds of Old Testament law written out on it. It's not your standard association. Yet, look at this. In this Christmas account, these verses are replete with birth and law fulfillment. Let's consider them again slowly in verse 22. Note timing in verse 22. There's timing. The time for post-birth purification according to law. Verse 24, there is law sacrifice. I want us to note here what is sacrifice. We need to remember this. Two turtle doves or young pigeons. So let's put this all together. So circumcision, 
purification, sacrifice at Christ's birth. That's an awful lot of law happening this first Christmas. Now, hold on to that and turn to Leviticus 12. Turn to Leviticus 12. Here we see, and we need to visit this because a text like this begs it, we need to turn to the Mosaic Law and see where a lot of these things are coming from. If we were to pick up, this is right in the middle of purification prescription. It's just gone through the animals, the certain types of animals that are acceptable in God's sight and those that are not. And here in chapter 12, it turns to childbirth. The law turns to childbirth. Let's look at the first four verses. It says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, now there's our context, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. That'd be very familiar to the Jew, right? There's your circumcision, and we saw that in our passage. And then this, verse 4, then she shall continue for 33 days, there you see 33 plus the 8, in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. So let's stop there and take stock. Here we see these events prescribed in the law coming to fulfillment at the birth of Jesus. But even more than that, Remember, we not only saw circumcision and purification, we also saw what? Sacrifice. Go down to verse 6. When when the days of her purifying are completed, that's key, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. So we see now the sacrifice and the presentation that we saw in Luke coming to bear. But then note this detail. This tells you something that I think we instinctively know about Mary and Joseph already. Look at this in verse 8. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. If she cannot afford a lamb, this tells us that Mary and Joseph could not afford that. Back now to Luke 2. In fact, we see that very clearly. It doesn't even say in Luke 2. Luke doesn't tell us that. He just skips to this is what they brought. A pair of turtle doves, verse 24, or two young pigeons. So what is the point of this? As we think about law, Levitical law, Law of Moses, right? You see these prescriptions for circumcision, purification, sacrifice. What is the point of all this? Jesus was a Jew, yes. Part of a lawful Jewish family, yes. But there's more here. And we can't miss this at Christmas. And we can't miss this when we think about the impact of Christ on us at Christmas. These birth legalities remind us that Jesus was born... We've been dealing with a lot of location in Romans, haven't we? Well, here's another location. Jesus is born under God's law. Don't miss that. Jesus didn't come down like some rogue and, and, and had a way to do it. No, this was subjection and humiliation, remember. He was born and he, subju- he was subjected to God's law. This is so key. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born where? Under the law. And that's exactly what we see here in Luke 2. This is fulfillment. This is fulfillment. But more, there's more here. Now, under law is one thing. Let's track with this. It's one thing to be born under law. Many Jews, every Jew was born under the law. The Old Testament tells us that. Just as all human beings are born under law as well, Jew or Gentile. This has been our study in Romans 1 to 3. All human beings in that sense, born under the law of God. So Jesus, born under the law, is one thing. Born as man, like us, Jesus was subject to law. However, unlike us, Christ fared very differently under the law, didn't he? He fared very differently under the law. Christ's whole life was not just a life of law, subjection, and living. Let's not miss this. But a life of perfect law fulfillment. Hear our Lord in Matthew 5, 17. This is Jesus. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Right? He didn't come apart from that in one sense. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. Yes, the legalities around his birth were only the beginning. The start of a life that was absolute law fulfillment from start to finish. And listen, not just Mosaic law... The law Moses received was a time stamp for the Jews. We looked at that in Exodus. From Moses to Jesus. But as Jesus himself would remind his disciples, God's law was more than Moses in one sense. The law Jesus had in view was the whole law of God, hence anger and lust and so on. Thus you've heard it said, and I say to you, in other words, let me help you see God's law here. God's eternal law. The standard of his character, the law of God for his creation, for humanity. Yes, the law of God that each human being is called to account to live. But here it is. We're called to live that law, but we cannot, can we? We cannot live that. And this is why this element of Christ's birth account is important for us. Because this is just the beginning. It shows us the very beginning of a life of law fulfillment. Christian Christ fulfilled the law for us. And listen, this is the beginning. And what did we celebrate earlier this morning? How it would culminate. And this is the marvel this Christmas morning. This is the beginning of law fulfillment. That he would live a life of complete law fulfillment. And then take that life under God's law. And offer it as a perfect sacrifice for you and I, Christian. It cannot get better than that. Again, this is law fulfillment. Law fulfillment in his being, in his living. Christ was born under the law, subjected to it. This is the point here in our text. Again, however, Christ was not born under sin. Let's be clear about that. He was born under law, but not under sin. As we are, we're born under sin, and we've been learning that in Romans. As such, he could do then what we cannot do in this Christmas we must consider that. Galatians 4, 5 says that his first advent, his birth, was to redeem purpose those who were under the law. Because he could. To redeem those under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. The birth of Jesus Christ reminds this church of his law fulfillment that led to sonship. There's no other way. Only through Christ. That's one Law 2, look at longing. 
The text is focused on Christ thus far, and we're familiar with him at Christmas. Certainly not necessarily the law fulfillments, but we are familiar with Christ. But here, look what the text does. Look at verse 25. We're introduced now to one not so well known. Let's pick it back up in 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And we're going to stop there. Who is this Simeon? Look at him. Well, we learn here in the text, he was a resident of Jerusalem. He was, look again, he was righteous and devout. Now, that would be before God. This is his conduct. You see that expression often. This is his conduct. He's righteous. He's devout. Those are outstanding qualities, but we have to note here that others are called that. You think of Job, maybe, right? Even Joseph, a just man. What, however, catches our attention here is this. Look at the end of verse 25. It says, he was waiting for what? The consolation of Israel, or we could say the comfort of Israel. That's given very clearly there in the original as a title. The consolation of Israel. The great comfort and hope of Israel. This is Messiah. The great messianic Jewish hope and expectation. This was longing. This is your picture of Simeon. Longing. Longing that was known Again, his Old Testament seed, the waiting for him. Simeon and the long line of Old Testament saints that aligned with seed, that looked ahead and longed for Messiah. This is the longing, by the way, we heard sung last night. Do you remember Isaiah 25, 9? Remember again, it said, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. Waited for him that we might that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. A longing first advent that we now as Gentiles have for a second advent. This is always an association with the advent of Christ. Longing. Now remember, it was really one coming for them in the Old Testament. They didn't have the eyes that we have now to recognize that it was two comings. But they did long for his coming. Now, there is more said of Simeon here, and we continue. Look at the end of 25. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Come back to that. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the law, custom of the law. The Holy Spirit, look at this, was not only upon him, which is, if you're noticing, Old Testament language of the operation of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is coming upon him, which is in the long line there of Old Testament saints that has the Holy Spirit coming upon him, but also that the Holy Spirit had revealed something to him. Now, you would imagine we have to be careful here when we see this language. What does that mean? We stay in the text. It means the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon this moment, that's what that means. That's it. It means this was true for Simeon in this account, this first Christmas, which makes sense. I think we would agree this is a very special time in history, the birth of Messiah, and recorded in Scripture. 
and to have a confirming testimony by special operation of the Holy Spirit at that time makes complete sense. We see this as Christ's ministry unfolds in the first century, all kinds of authentication by way of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, it does not mean, it does not mean, because it's happening here, that the Holy Spirit still operates this way by giving specific revelation to the Simeons of today. No. What did Gary read for us earlier this morning? Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. We have Scripture. In those times it was the prophets, now it's the Son, as we see him embodied in his word. And it is enough. What you're holding in your hands is more than enough revelation. This is historical account. So we don't dare violate the text by wanting to be like Simeon in that way. And in history, with this account, we encounter Simeon, a man, but, but here is what we do see and need to see, that was longing for the consolation of Israel. Now, longing for Messiah, unlike revelation of the Holy Spirit in that way, is something that transcends every administration. Longing for seed, longing for his return. And here Simeon, this landmark arrival, has been longing, and it's confirmed by God's Spirit. Christ's birth, his first coming in that first century, was the fulfillment of longing. We can't possibly grasp what was going on with Simeon here. Waiting, and now seeing the fulfillment. The long-awaited yearning and hope of God's people for their coming Messiah. If we can this morning, Westmount, can you just try and imagine Simeon knew his Old Testament. Just think with me. He knew his Old Testament. He knew Messiah was coming. They didn't know when, but now, by way of the Holy Spirit, he knew I'm in that moment right now. Messiah has come. We are reminded here that the longing was fulfilled. Christ did come. And we're reminded, before we move too quickly... He is coming again. It may be true that we are found longing for his return when he comes again. Law, longing, next, light. We continue in verse 28. It says this, He, Simeon, took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said. Stop there. Simeon takes up the baby Jesus, the Christ child, in his arms. There's another one. Just imagine that picks up the Christ child, and he gives a blessing. And what follows in these verses is something like a New Testament psalm in form and in content. Notice even the way it's poetically laid out. Look at verse 29 to 32. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You know, many read that and they think Simeon was older, right? You've probably heard that. They think Simeon was an old man. Yet, there's nothing here that suggests that. What we do see here, regardless of age or stage, is a man content and at peace. That's the point. This is, this is the point of Simeon. Not that he's an older man, but he's a content man and a peaceful man. And especially now that he has seen Messiah. A man that not only does not fear death, 
But look at this, but now welcomes it. Oh, may it be said of us. He says, now I can go. I'm ready to go. How can he be so fearless in death? How can he be so ready to die and depart in peace? So foreign to us today, isn't it? Everyone is clinging to this temporal life. And everybody fears death. Nobody wants to go. Well, simply this man, Simeon, saw the light. Look at verse 30. It's so clear. For my eyes have seen your salvation. The four there tells us that's the reason why he can depart in peace. That's what it is. You see that? For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all people. Simply this. Why is he ready to go? He's seen the light. My eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon was enlightened to both his need for salvation, which, by the way, is not just a Jewish need. It's the need of all human beings. And the means of deliverance. Which, of course, is the child in his arms, the consolation of Israel. But more, more than the consolation of Israel, 1 Timothy 4.10 says, This is a savior of all people, especially those who believe. This transcends the Jewish nation. This is the savior of the world. Now listen, whether or not the world receives him, right? doesn't matter. I appreciate what Ben said last night. It doesn't take away good news. Whether you receive it or not, it's still good news. In the same way, he's the savior of the world. Whether you receive him or not, he's your only lifeboat into eternity. That's it. There's none other. Jesus Christ. This Savior is not just, again, the only Savior for first century Jews like Simeon, but this child, this Savior child, is the only Savior for the rest of us right up to today. Thus, Simeon can depart in peace because he has seen the light, the child's light before death. Simeon cannot fear the grave because he's ready to meet God, his Father. Simeon, a sinner like all of us, but one no longer in darkness, but in light, by faith. With eyes of faith to see this child as not just a child, but he has eyes to see this child as salvation. And that's really the key, isn't it? Is he just Jesus? That's his name. Or do you see, like Simeon, salvation? And although this is a lesser-known corner of the Christmas account, we're confronted with a well-known question. We've already sung it this morning. What child is this? We see Simeon. We know what he thinks of this child. But the question is begged of us this morning. How do you look on the child? What do you see when you look at this child? What do you see? Do you see light? Do you see salvation? Before that even, does this child cause you to see your need and the darkness within you, the need for the light of this child? Even more than that, what then do you do with it? If you recognize your need, you recognize the only salvation, what do you do? Inactivity is an answer, right? Doing nothing, saying, I just need more data. I need time. I just need to figure this out. You've already given your answer. What now? Listen to me, beloved. I don't know your stead this morning here, this Christmas morning, but if your eyes have been opened, maybe by this text, and God's light is starting to come in, 
only then with eyes opened to see this child of light, will you be able to die in peace? That's the only way. It's the only way not to fear the grave. There is no other way. Unless you see this child for light, listen to me, you will and should fear the grave. Do you see Jesus, the light of the world? The same light that has always and ever been the light of Messiah, the light of this child. Yes, this Messiah, this message has never changed. That's what we've been looking at again in Romans, right? This euangelion, this good news from the very beginning has always been faith in seed. That's the only way. This salvation God prepared in the presence of all peoples, verse 31, publicly, what that means. Simeon was a member of the nation through which that light would go forth. Talked about this with the nation of Israel. They were the cherished nation, the chosen people for which this message and this light would go forth. Listen to Isaiah 42. Read a bit through these songs of the servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Of course, Matthew references that in Matthew 12. Then in verse 6, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Listen, a light for the nations. That's the prophecy of this coming one. To open the eyes that are blind. How many eyes are blind today? This is what this child will do. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. How many are in prison today? Figuratively. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, it says, that is my name. But there's more, Isaiah 49, 6. Listen, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant. To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you, here it is, of this child as a light for the nations. Israel, right? You will be a light for the nations and the embodiment of this is Christ. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Christ comes to fulfill this and of course we are going to see that in kingdom come. Amazing truths. And then finally Isaiah 60. Listen to this. You know this text well. 1 to 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come. This is to Israel. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And then listen to this. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is the point. This child's arrival signaled light coming into the world. Look, they already had the sun, right? We're just giving light every 24 hours, right? We're not talking about that light. This is spiritual, divine light that every human being needs to see their own sin and see God for who he is and the only hope of salvation to be reconciled. That's the light that's needed. These were the prophecies of Isaiah coming to fulfillment at this first advent. And it's laid before us now as we consider this light. Do you have eyes to see? Christ, the servant of the Lord, the light of the world, here in this account in Luke 2, arriving in Simeon's eyes are wide open to see. 
Arriving by way of divine appointment and divine purpose, he sees this child. Of course, there's even more here. Verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Simeon's not done. Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, listen, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. That's to Mary so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. By way of the Holy Spirit, Simeon declares the power of this child to bring God's people up. Do you see that? And then to cause others to fall. What child is this? Verse 34 that can do that. This is exactly, by the way, what was prophesied in Psalm 118, as we think again of some Old Testament Prophecy, Psalm 118, listen to this, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Whatever this is, has been rejected, comes to a place of prominence. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Such a day, such a day of Messiah. Incredible truth as we think about this. This coming one and the prophecy. Some reject and stumble as Jesus would confirm, by the way, in Matthew 21. And others would look on him as Psalm 118 reminds us and rejoice and be glad. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a more polarizing figure in the cosmos than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to make you go in one of two directions, says the word of God. Now, it won't be as a flamboyant as a rejection. You may not have this in the air, but you are moving right now in one of two directions. In his orbit toward the sun, or you just need to get away from him. And that's what these texts point to. He is the cornerstone. Some trip and stumble over him, like many of the Jews did, and many still do today. And some fall down and just rejoice. Light has come. Light has come. Simeon reveals to Mary, by the way, that she too, did you notice that, will be pierced by this power. Simeon's saying, you too, Mary, you too. Now listen, it doesn't mean she will stumble. We keep our context. The account in Luke has already showed the opposite, hasn't it? Chapter 1, 46 to 55, what did she say? Her soul what? Magnifies the Lord. That's far from stumbling. Mary knows who this child is, so let's not go there. But this means that her heart, like the hearts of many, this is Simeon's prophecy, through this child will be revealed. In other words, Mary, you're no different. Like everyone else, your heart will be pierced. And here, the point is to confirm that this child is penetrating, piercing light. Not even you, Mary, mother, can escape the light of the world. Light in darkness, light that illuminates, and here it is that shines right into human hearts. Christian, you know what I'm talking about. Because that light still does, doesn't he? You can't escape that light. You know this light, Christian. It's the light revealed today in this word. Look at it. It's like a sword, Hebrews 4, 12, that exposes your heart. And the question, when that light hits your heart, you've been there, Christian, you know this, when the light shines and the rats scatter and your heart's exposed, the question is, how do you respond to that light? Yes, maybe it's salvation light, you've been there, 
praise God. But that sanctifying light of Christ, when it shines into your heart in the middle of your sin, the question is, how do you respond? You know this. You wake up. You've been there. Coffee in hand, feeling good and warm after a good sleep. You pick up the word. It's a good day. And you read those words and you feel the back of your neck crawl. He knows exactly what's going on in my life. And you feel the penetrating light come to you in the stillness of the morning. You feel struck, but your flesh wants to what? Fight. And you immediately start going through what? Well, is this really what I'm reading? Could it really mean this? Is there a way out of this? Which friend can I call that will help me get out of this? You have a choice, and the penetrating light says, what are you going to do? And beloved, you must do what all of us have to do. Listen, what every human being ought to do before the penetrating light of illumination. Fall on your knees. Repent. Return and be regenerated and renewed by the light. There's no other response. Don't fight because you can't fight. One more element to pull forward in this tucked away Christmas account. Law, longing, light, and finally love. We move from one figure whose age we do not know to one who the text makes clear we do know, and that is Anna. Let's consider Anna now in verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The text tells us she was a prophetess. Indeed, during that unique time of Christ in the apostles, there were indeed some prophets that were women. Prophetesses had a role, although not like that of the apostles and the writers of Scripture, They had a role. Anna, as a prophetess, likely functioned like other prophets in the early church. Their role would have been simply this, to build up the church through prophecy. We're told this in Ephesians 2, 20, the part of the foundation of the church. They're vessels of God's revelation for that very unique and special time. Of course, as the church would go on, develop, be established, the function no longer needed. But here, what do we know and learn of this Anna, this first century prophetess? We see she was, like Simeon, a Jew. Do you see that? And we, unlike Simeon, were actually given her tribe, from the tribe of Asher. Probably the most famous descendant of the tribe of Asher. Also, unlike Simeon, we have confirmation that she was advanced in years. Look at verse 36. Not only older, but look at this, the text It's giving us this, and this is the point, only married seven years, then a widow until 84 years of age. Hence, this description, even in the introductory details of Anna, tells us this, and you must see it, it tells of devotion. Devotion. This is a long life here, in this figure, of love and devotion toward her God. This love and devotion, by the way, are confirmed, so we're clear in verse 37. Look, it says, She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She wouldn't leave. 
And it didn't leave the temple. Now, admittedly, we do not know the when here. Like, how far back is this sweeping? Is it in this moment? Is this residence for most of her life as a widow and prophetess? Does she just literally live there in the temple district? Is this for years or at the coming of Christ? We just don't know those details exactly. But we do know that the text tells us and goes to lengths to explain that she had a devoted staying day and night. And not only that, we know the manner of her being there. This isn't just time and stay. Look at this. She was there not just watching, but what? Worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. That paints a very clear picture, doesn't it? Nothing else draws her attention. Nothing else consumes her time. And what would we say of someone like that today? Someone who's day and night worshiping and praying the Lord, would you say they're fanatical? Would you say they're holier than thou? Well, you know that person, they're just praying all the time. They're worshiping all the time. And they fast too. Can you believe that? Would you give them a label? Or would you say they're holy? And they're devoted. And they love their God. Anna is in the pages of Scripture for her devotion to God. And she's certainly no fanatic. Christian, we always must pause and let the text do what it needs to do in our hearts. Can you relate to that devotion this morning? Do you know of this kind of devotion? Might it be said of you, this is what is said of Anna. Again, church, this is love for her God. And by the way, this is not just an Anna New Testament thing. We can go all throughout the Old Testament and find lots of examples of this kind of devotion. This is love. This is love for God. Love for the newborn king. Love for Jesus. Listen, true love for Jesus. Now that reveals her love, but we're presented with one final glimpse in verse 38. Look at it with me. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. At that very hour, see that? She comes up or comes forward. This is manner, not timing, right? And her manner of coming with thanks. Do you see that? This is her legacy, to give thanks, to speak of him. Look at this. Look at in one verse. She's not walking around the the temple proclaiming all that she did in 84 years. You know, I was a widow and let me, if you have time, I want to tell you about all the things I did for Jesus. That's not love. That's pride. That's put soapbox and talk about all the things I've did for the Lord. No, Anna proclaims him. Someone would say, well, Anna, I want to hear about your prophetess ministry. Free to free. No, I want to proclaim him. You only need to hear of him. Speak of him to those ready ears. Look at it, waiting for redemption. To those with ears to hear, and that's the key, with ears to hear, she spoke of him. She didn't speak of Anna. She spoke of him. This is love. Looking to another, focused outside self, giving of self. Of course, this is love displayed by Anna in the presence of true love's arrival. Perfect love that is the Christ. 
At Christmas, this is what we celebrate, beloved, isn't it? Love come down. And we're reminded of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is who he is and does what he does because he is love. He is love. So the fulfillment of law, longing, light, and love, the fulfillment of Christ's birth. All here in this unheralded corner of this chapter of the Christmas account, tucked away in Luke's gospel, second chapter. Westmount, my final appeal to you is let us not hurry past it to Christmas activity. Maybe on your minds right now are all the things the rest of the day will be. Please, let's not hurry past this to Christmas activity. Let us linger on this worship, this love today. The Lord has come. The Lord has come. Let us now, this blessed morning, employ song. There can be nothing more fitting that we can do to respond to this Christmas account. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the truth of this first advent that we see even in pages, Lord, that we're tempted to overlook. We see them laid bare for us this morning, and we give you thanks. Thank you for your word, Lord, the treasure that it is, how it reveals so much to us, the penetrating light of your word. We thank you, Father, for the word that directs our path, Lord, tells us how to live. We thank you, Father, for all the great truths of it that not only we've learned today but now by your grace and strength we will go out and live the rest of this christmas day and christmas season so help us lord we pray in christ's name amen